Hello, everybody. Good evening. Uh, my name is Buyana Stancic. I'm the programmer of Croisis Marie Projects here at the Art Gallery of Ontario. <laughs> um, and it is my absolute pleasure to welcome you to this evening's talk, Inspiration is a Monster, Diamanda Galas, in conversation with Owen Pallet. As I welcome you to tonight's program and the AGO, I also would like to acknowledge that we are gathered on Mississauga territory, land that has been home to Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat through time. Tonight's event is part of the programming suite complementing the exhibition Guillermo del Toro, uh, At Home with Monsters, that's on view until January 7th. And as for the artists you will see tonight, two pieces of housekeeping just before I introduce them. Uh, one is that there will be a question and answer period at the end, and the second one is if you can please refrain from photography um, during the talk. Hailed as one of the most exceptional singers of our time, Diamanda Galas has earned international acclaim for her highly original and politically charged performance works. Notable among these are Plague Max, De Ficciones, Order from Debt, Vina Cava, Shri X, and The Refugee. Galas is a singer, pianist, activist, painter, and is one of the most revered artists of the late 20th century. She has toured worldwide, presenting the work of living and dead poets who were imprisoned, exiled, or assassinated from or by their own countries, and poets who lived in fear for their lives for real or perceived political or moral dissidents. Owen Pallet is a composer, violinist, keyboardist, and vocalist. He has received a string of critically praised records and won the Polaris Prize in 2006. He currently releases albums with Secret City Records and Dominant Recording Company. His chamber music has been commissioned by the National Ballet of Canada, the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, Bang on a Can, the Barbican, uh, among many others. He served as a curator of the TSO's New Creation Festival in 2017. Um, if you will now please help me welcome to the stage Diamanda Galas and Owen Pallet. Hi everyone, thank you for coming to our talk. I'm just pulling up my laptop so uh, I can play some music off of it. Do you want to say hi? Oh, yes, of course. Hello. <laughs> nice to be here. Um, first of all, thank you so much, Diamanda, for your concert last night. It has been 20 years since you were last in Toronto? I don't believe it was that long. I, maybe it was, could have been. Could have been. Might have been less. 19 years? Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. No, I think you're right. Close. Maybe longer. Mm. <laughs> Not so good. It was that appearance in Toronto, actually, that was the first um, time I became aware of your music because uh, I was coming downtown for Youth Symphony at like age 14, 15 or something. And I saw an image of you that you said is Annie Leibovitz. Was yes. It? Yeah, on a cross, topless, with fire behind you on the cover of I Weekly. And I was just like, I need to know what this is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So. Oh, man. 
Okay, the first thing I wanted to ask you about was um, the concept of um, Amanis, which you've talked about in interviews um, before, and it seems to reference some kind of Greek music. And I tried to Google it, but I couldn't really find too much information about it. That's because this band from Norway, I believe, or somewhere up there, decided to do a record called Amanides or Amanis, and it was a heavy metal record having absolutely nothing to do with Amanis, the Greek Amanis. So you can't find it anymore because it's reviews of their stupid record. <laughs> uh, Have you listened to it? No, I, I listened to two seconds of it and trashed the guy really big time. And he found out about it and wrote me a letter. And he said, yes, but every month, every, once a year, every month I live in Greece. And I'm like, I'm tremendously impressed. <laughs> but in any case, Amanis is what I think of as the last prayer of the soldier when he's dying to his mother, because mana means mother in Greek. Um, and I think of it as his last prayer. It, it also, interestingly enough, uh, is related, I think, to maniates, which is the, the group of people uh, near uh, Sparta, the original Sparta, and they uh, were the fighters for Greece against the Turks, and they were also unconquered by the Turks. And uh, they were called maniacs because they lived to fight. And so there, there's uh, many different connections, but um, it's, it's a tradition that has been practiced primarily from Western Anatolia, which people call Turkey, but Turkey doesn't exist. Turkey is made up that name is made up by the Turks as land for the Turks. It, after the genocides of the Greeks, the Armenians, the Assyrians, the Yazidis, the Azeris, and others, the, Turkey was the name for Anatolia. And so this western part of Anatolia had a mix of different cultures that created the Amanis, which are essentially improvisations one could say to a god invented by despair, but they're improvisations based on ancient melodies that are related to Byzantine music, uh, that are employed in Byzantine churches, that are makams, and the word makam means a road of, let's say, notes, roads of notes that have been practiced for long time. So, so like a scale, you mean? Like, yes, yeah. but a little bit different because they're actually melodies. And they're, so they're permuted, they're convoluted they're by artists. And they essentially begin a song or they are sung alone or they are sung in the middle of a song of uh, different places, but they there have been many masters of this style of singing, including Katazidis, Angelopoulos, many, many different uh, masters. And um, I don't know why the form isn't known so much, but um, it's, it's very ancient. And uh, there are very few practitioners of it right now, you know. 
do you um, you bring amanes into certain songs like yes. like you'll take a be singing a, another standard and then kind of break into that mode of of music making right well I'll do it in pieces in which the the modes or the scale of the piece make it suitable but also the emotion behind the piece like in Artemis you know um, or or death um, or Abel and Cain pieces like that lend itself to the Amandes I won't put it in the middle of a like just any standard just as a you know what I mean that would be a bit much the Johnny Paycheck song you wouldn't no, 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 that would be really, <laughs> no. Okay. Um, I wanted to talk with you about um, O Death specifically. Yes. Because um, it's a song that you've now um, recorded three times, I think. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, each time, it seems that you are approaching it um, differently. Yes. Different, different format. And what strikes me about hearing it in different um, performances over different albums is that I'm no longer comparing it to other performances, but rather to previous performances that you've done mm -hmm. and hearing kind of like different interpretations and different ways that you're um, kind of coaxing philosophical ideas out of the material. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to talk with you about the version that appears on All the Way yeah. that was recorded um, at the ATP Festival. Right. Yeah. Um, I can should I talk about it or should I just play the part that I'm thinking of? What's that? Should I talk about it first or do you want to talk about it or should I just play the part that I'm thinking of? You can of? just play where you want to play it. Okay. Like. Well, this is about, I just wanted to play a little about three minutes of this um, version of the song. We'll see where we are.
to interrupt you once it got going there. <laughs> um, um, so the, that part at the beginning, which was in the middle of this performance and at the end, is that, is that what you characterize as an amanis or something else? Uh, the part at the end? The beginning, or where I first started playing it in the kind of middle section. No, no. that's not an amanis. No. The beginning, the very beginning of the piece was an amanis. Oh, okay. The very beginning. This is, um, it's become... Uh, one part of the rich, one of the ritual parts of the piece, let's say, I would say, let's say, it's, it, it begins with this production of multiphonics, but at the same time, uh, more of a, you could say, an operatic sound. So you have singing two notes, or three. I'm singing maybe the operatic sound, let's say you're singing a G, but you're also singing multiphonic on top of that or under it, and then another one, a lower one, and then moving to different notes. And then it just goes straight into, um, I suppose someone could call it vocal noise. I, I don't like to use expressions like that. But I really, um, it, it's very, I, I don't even recognize that performance because it's just one of the, you know, but I don't, uh, I would say there's a point where I start out the way I think I'm going to start out, and then it evolves during the performance and goes to different places. But I have to tell you that I don't even, you know, I don't remember it so much. And because I've done different, so many different performances of it, and I don't, it takes me there, you know. I'm going somewhere, but I, 
I don't know where I'm going to end up, you know, and I don't have a, a plan for it. You know, I do have a, the, essentially a, a plan at the beginning, like I'll alternate between two, two or three melodies with the multiphonics, and, and then it just goes where it's going to go, you know, more or less. So your approach to each performance is more or less kind of like um, intuitive rather than... Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, there's no... Um, there's no... Um, I mean, not to say there isn't a form initially, but the idea of it is, is to go somewhere. And that, I, I really enjoyed that performance that night. I mean, there was a, it was a, all tomorrow's parties, so they had a lot of bands there, and they really were not... It, it's not, it wasn't really a place where you would have a soloist, and so I kind of enjoyed the challenge, and I won. <laughs> I like that. I like those audiences sometimes. It's just like, you know what? Fuck you. <laughs> I mean, let's be real. I, I just wanted to ask you if you had like any, any anecdotes about like really winning, winning over in a hostile crowd, like really just owning them. So many. Yeah. Because, <laughs> so many, because if you decide to do something as ridiculous as stand up and stand up with, let's say, five microphones, you know, in a quadraphonic situation for one thing, you're going to get all sorts of questions like, hey, baby, what are you doing tonight? I mean, just bullshit, just all sorts of stuff. And sometimes I just answer the question, just like, just like you don't have the right credentials or some shit, and then just keep singing. But in point of fact, I don't really like doing that. I just like just being in mastery and knowing what I'm doing so much that those things are completely irrelevant. And I do, I've gotten to the point where I don't even hear them anymore. I had apparently in Tasmania, when I was performing a couple years ago, some guy that was in the front row screaming at me the whole performance, and I didn't hear it at all. And people were like really annoyed with him, and I wasn't even aware that he was there. So that's, what our, that's where you should be, you know, because you're on this makam, the road, you're on your road. And that means that it doesn't matter what anyone is saying, because they're not on the road, they're just on the side. So I like that. Um, I'm curious as to, uh, do, you, do you have kind of a, any one particular goal or several different goals when you approach um, working on a new standard or working on a, whether it's a jazz standard or an older song? Like, um, I've, I've read in different interviews to talk about deconstruction or reclamation or even a concept of lit liturgification, like turning it into liturgy. Do you, um, can you comment a little more on that? Like, uh, well, I, I would say that, the, that what I look for when I'm looking for, or if I'm looking through a poet's work or, or if I'm looking through a book of, of uh, German expressionist poet, as I was a long time ago before I discovered George Heim, for example. That's just a moment. Um, I was reading through many poems, and you know, I came to this poem that was, it had this liturgical, it had this cadence, you know, and generally I use the 
structures of the Alexandrian sonnet, you know, this type of thing that was employed, certainly Cavafy and afterwards, the Baudelaire and so many other poets. And I like that cadence very much. And they lend themselves to music. I mean, if you know what you're doing, you know, obviously. So that's, if you're talking about liturgical, yes. The standards, I wouldn't say that I feel that way about them, but I'll give you an example. I was having a dreadful um, end of a love affair with, with a psychopath, and, and um, as they generally are, and, um, and I was standing in my room, and I was playing a record of Chet Baker singing The Thrill Is Gone, and I said, oh my God, it really is over. It really is over. And I hadn't even heard one word. It was the chord changes that told me. And then I said, let me look at that. It's, it, it's the words, I didn't hear those words. I, then I, I played it again and I, I tried not to hear the words. And then I said, those, I didn't hear those words. Those are not the right words. And sure enough, the thrill is gone. The thrill is gone, you know. And wow. And the way he was singing it, of course, as a supreme melancholic that he was. And uh, that right there, just the changes, they take you again on a road that is irrefutable. And even without the words, they tell you the story. And so when I looked at each word, I was devastated, and I was right. And then I had to sing it, because it became the fiber of my current existence. It, 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 you know what I mean? You can't, re you can't resist Yeah, it. no, I know exactly, exactly what you mean. <laughs> like, I've been I'll, if going through a breakup or something and in, in the back of a taxi cab hear a song that I've heard a million times and just suddenly be like, oh my gosh, this is destroying me now. You know, like the, the significance of a, you know, the chord changes or these lyrics that seemed so innocuous. Right. In the moment of heartbreak, you're just kind of like, oh no, this is like really, I'm really feeling this. Yeah. yeah. And it's strange. It's strange because I've mentioned Doris Day many in interviews, and people think that I'm, they don't believe it. And I'm saying, I believe it because she sang some really, really morbid love songs. I mean, they were tough. And she sang them with this precise legato, with no. It sounds like she's not even interpreting the song. It's like Joe Stafford singing. It's, it's so pure that the message is right here. It's right here. And it's, it's perfect breath control, the control of the timbre of the voice. And the song makes you cry. And, you know, uh, 
I think when I was younger, I didn't recognize that because I, I, I would have rejected it for stylistic reasons, blah, blah, blah. But then something changed and I, well, working on The Voice for so many years, I was able to recognize how difficult it is to sing like that, you know? Um, we were talking a bit backstage um, about Mary Margaret O'Hara and for the benefit of, you know, a Toronto audience, could you maybe share with them, you know, some of your thoughts on her as a singer? On whom? Mary Margaret O'Hara. Oh, I love her so much. She's such a genius. I saw a couple of videos of her that Hal Wilner, my friend, showed me. He's, he produced one or two of her records, and she's so spectacular. When she sings, her sense of time is just out there. And the musicians, I've heard, initially have trouble following her, and then they get it. But she's like a, like a, I, like an ephemera, some sort of, like almost a dancer in a sense. The way she sings, her gestures, her eyes, it's, it's really immaculate. It's, her sense of time is, is really almost dramaturgical, you know? It's a very rare person, this person. Very rare. One in a million, really. Well, we love her. <laughs> well, I mean it. Yeah. You know, I've wanted to talk to her for a long time, and I hope I get to. Um, you mentioned, um, uh, a second ago, you mentioned Haim, uh, this poet that, yeah. he's the uh, author of uh, Das Fieberspital, the yeah. fever hospital, which is an ongoing work you've been working on now for six years? Oh, since uh, uh, four or five. Four or five, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, could you tell me, t tell the audience a little bit more about this work and what yes. it entails? The, the poem takes place in an industrial building which holds uh, the people with yellow fever. And so the, the room is a completely white room with white beds and people who are covered with uh, blood on their faces and they're condemned to this room because they have this contagious disease. And this was during the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and so this is when it was possible to use different buildings to create, you know, subsets, sets, subsets of different contagious diseases and put people who were um, disabled in this building and then people with this deformity in this building and just remove them from the center of society because nobody wanted to see them. So. This room represented to me also how soldiers that come back from the wars are hidden from society and rejected by veterans' hospitals and uh, having interviewed a few of these institutions, they, well, these persons are, uh, live in the garages of their friends or on the street because they 
they don't get paid for years for what they've done, uh, you know, for their service, what they believed was a service to their country, and they come back and they're, they can't think anymore. They were forcibly given um, opiates and, and drugs like um, New Vigil, which keep, keep firefighters awake for 72 hours, but they're not thinking the last 24 hours and they get very paranoid and very irritable and they believe that a, a, a jet is, or I mean a fire, another firefighter in plane is coming into them, so they start to take aggressive action when there's no, nothing there. And I mean, it's really horrible because these people come back from the war and they're addicted to all these drugs and these institutions say, we don't take drug addicts. So you're left alone to die, that's it, you know? So it's, it's a metaphorically, it's a metaphor for this, this place where you can never be what you used to be. You have been destroyed. Your mind has been destroyed. Your body has been destroyed. And that's it. And so it's the same. You have this room and you have these people with this disease and gigantic spiders hanging from the ceiling with a sap from their stomachs dropping onto the stomachs of the sick and people who are looking up at the ceiling in horror, and then a priest coming by trying to give the last rites to someone who he believes is dying. And this priest represents a, a specter of a, a, a giant crow, a hawk or buzzard, you know, to the patient. And they're laughing at the psalms he's reading or whatever he's reading, the patients are laughing. They're delirious and they're laughing at him. But he goes up to one patient, and that patient hallucinates that the wafer that you get after the last rites is in fact one of the arachnids hanging from the ceiling that he wants to force down his throat. So the patient takes a stone that he's been sharpening and impales the forehead of the priest with a stone, and that's how the point ends. It's magnificent, it's impeccable. It, it really is impeccable and I, I was struck. I mean, n not only at the content, of, obviously, but the cadence, the liturgical form. And as well, he had seen his father working. He, his father was a Prussian officer and his father had duties of watching executions every day, but he also worked in these wards. So the son saw this, all these, the suffering. You know, I mean, imagine going to a room and, and hearing this is the last place you're going to go until you die. And the, seeing these people coming in for the dead to take them out on a boat and put them somewhere. It, I've used the expression, the nightmare made flesh for AIDS. And so these subjects are subjects that I return to because they're very close to me for some reason. Because the subjects of isolation and stigma are very close 
there's no reason to defend that choice. It's not a choice, you know, it's just a reality. Yeah, you, um, speaking of the concept of removal from society, you once told me in an email something that I found was very striking, which is that loneliness is really the, is the real killer. Loneliness is actually what, what, what will kill you. Yes, I agree. And I, 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 I experience it to uh, obscene proportion out of my own choice, usually, and that's not a good thing. Um, because if there's too much of it, you, you, you recoil, you recoil like an animal, just like, like a, a, a turtle or something, you know? And you live inside that shell. It's, it's, it's a very dangerous thing. A lot of people have that predisposition, you know, and you have to fight it every day. It's just not easy. Can you comment a little bit on the format of the piece? Uh, the Dust Fever, because I, th I think I remember you mentioning something about a board or something. There's a what? A board, like a, a piece of wood. Or was that this piece? This is years ago, we were talking about it. Hmm, a board. I wonder what that, I don't know what I was referring to then. Hmm. But, but uh, you know, my, vi just a minute. I went to work on the piece with the Grotowski Institute. They invited me there. And I told them that my vision of the piece was that people would be in these white beds, like the poem, and they would be all white, completely you know, hair white, uh, uh, diapers white, everything white. and. And then there would be the priest, all these characters that existed in the poem. And at the same time, the music that I had composed would be uh, performed by myself and you know the piano and a lot of electronic work that I had done of multi-tracting, um, um, multiphonics that I'd uh, recorded in reverse delay and a lot of a lot of things, a lot of things, and um, that's the idea of uh, the ultimate manifestation of the piece. But the problem is, is that to get to the ultimate manifestation of the piece, um, including persons, and we've discussed this, wanting me to do it with orchestra, which is interesting, also, is that one needs to have the funds to develop the core of the piece, which is, for me, the voice, the piano, the live electronics, the spatial manipulation of the sound. You know, this needs to be the first installation before anything else can exist. And what has happened in America for a long time is that people want the piece, but they don't want to pay for the production of the work. They want to give you money to, let's say, compose the work, but then the rehearsals that 
build up the momentum of the piece. For example, how many times did I perform O Death before I got it to that point? You know, these things are not guessing games. And so this is the thing that I've observed no one wants to pay for. And, and I find that really sad because it, it used to be part of the creative process in the United States. I don't know anything about how things are done here, but in the United States, now people want the final product. I mean, the final, and by this I mean the theatrical version. Now, how did I do that? Oh, I inherited money from Aristotle Onassis suddenly. You know, I mean, come on, let's get real. And it's very, very sad because what does it reduce you to, really? You know? One of the uh, songs that you performed last night, um, I was, I slipped to the back because I loved it and I was trying to pick out the German words and Google the poem and see if I could find out what it was. Um, but you told me that it's a song you yourself wrote for your mother? Yes, it's based on a poem by uh, Ferdinand Freilegrath, an um, Austrian poet from the 1900s. And he was, uh, that poem was Marlene Dietrich's most favorite poem. In the film, the documentary by uh, Maximilian Rochelle, he, uh, uh, the only time he really got her to, to respond was when he started to say that poem. And she said the poem with him and started to cry because it was a poem her mother taught her. And uh, the, the object of the poem is, says is to love as long as you can love. Uh, it means if you're taking care of someone who is sick, Try not to say harsh words. Try to be there as much as possible. Try not to say the things you might want to say because one day you'll be standing over the grave and you'll be remembering the things you've said whilst the person had forgiven you long ago. And this is a poem I wrote for my mother because at that time, at a certain time, we were arguing a lot, and it was, she was suffering a lot, and she was very irritable, and we would have a lot of fights, and, you know, and uh, anyway, this poem came, it came as a kind of salvation to this issue, which these poems are for me. They're like a, a reason to live, a reason to persist. They're gifts to me. You know, they're not these foreign things that I think, oh, isn't that interesting? It, they're gifts. And so by interpreting them and by, for example, researching very carefully the, the German words and not trusting the translation, um, I make astonishing discoveries about what the poet's really trying to say. Because we can never, ever assume that we understand what the Austrian poet's saying. There's no translation that is good enough to break that barrier. Even the finest translators will admit it, you know? So that was, that's what that poem is about. So I basically took the poem and then wrote 
the core changes, and, but it, I've been working on it for many years. And, and last night was by no means the definitive performance of it. By no means. It didn't satisfy me. But it, was, it had a lot of interesting ideas, but structurally it was a little bit um, adventurous. <laughs> it, I, I thought it was very satisfying. I thought Thank it was you. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was thinking about um, that bit that I was playing in Odeth, you know, and uh, my impression of this as the language devolves and just turns into a vocal, like guttural vocalizations, mm -hmm. is that the act of um, what you're singing in the song is you're saying, death, will you stay your hand another year? But as the song progresses, it's almost as if the language of your request has become meaningless, and rather Correct. it's just the act simply of begging for life. Yes. And that the act itself becomes the entirety of one's life. Because it's, yes. it's almost as if you're just staying there, like all, all that my life is right now is begging to... Yes, it's yeah. as if you're separate from yourself, from your former self. Mm -hmm. It's almost robotic, mm. in a sense. It's a, it's a transformation of a human being to... A human being with hope to a new human being that exists. An abject, like, abject yes. state, yeah. Yes, not ready to die, but knowing that he's uh, been uh, exempted from life. Mm. It's, it's, it's being on that boat with Charon. Mm. That's what it is. Um, my boyfriend got a tattoo last week, and it's of this um, cartoon dog. And the dog is wearing a, he has a cowl and a scythe, like he's a dog dressed as death. And I, the tattoo is really cute, but um, I saw it and I was like, that's not death. Death does not look like a cartoon dog. Um, and I was thinking about it and I was writing about it and I was wondering if you had any thoughts about like um, how death has manifested itself to you. Like, oh, yes. Um, like either in the physical sense or in the kind of internal sense, aside from just obviously like dealing with the real deaths of friends and family? All of the above. Because when you confront mortality, um, as we, we all know this, uh, when you confront uh, mortality in your own family, you are at the same time confronting your future, you know? If you have any kind of empathy at all, then there you are, you know, it's not as if you're looking just at a person, uh, quote, sympathetically, but empath is empath, it means to feel with, and there you are in this dungeon that you can't escape from. One is that you will be standing you will be with that person when that person dies, which is a horror, and then you will be next. And then you start counting the years that you have left and what you're going to do with them. And that's very frightening. And Greeks have a preoccupation with death. We are a culture of death. Our tragedies are... are well, uh, you could see it at the dinner table. I mean, 
just go to a friend, friend's Greek family's dinner and there it is. <laughs> it's really there. Just watch the father. <laughs> it's actually funny. No, I've definitely had that experience too, but when I've been around in the presence of my grandmother, who's, you know, 96 years old now, and decaying body and feeling suddenly that all of my, like, you know, feeling so strong, you know, next to her, just being like, oh, but I have so much more vitality, you know, so many more years ahead of me or something. But also that sympathy as well. Mm -hmm. um, I'm actually kind of running out of questions. What's that? I'm kind of running out of questions. Um, You're running out of questions? I am, yeah. Really? Yeah. It doesn't look like it. I know. I, I had all this stuff up here. Like a lot about, of questions. I had all this stuff up here about f f philosophical ideas. Uh, That's all right. I, I can learn. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to suggest that maybe we could open it up to the floor right. and open it up Sounds to the good. Q and A. Sounds good. We can totally do that. Um, if you've got a question, just put your hand up. We'll run a mic over to you. Oh. Um, we really like questions. We don't like sentences that end with a raised inflection. So questions, okay? We'll take it. I've never heard that before. We don't like sentences with raised inflections. But there's cultures that speak like that. <laughs> okay. Heidi, Amanda, uh, over here. Where? You? Yes. Oh, hello. <laughs> hello. Uh, pleasure meeting you, and thank you for the performance last night. As Owen said, um, it was uh, otherworldly, and I, I said to my friends, whoever had the privilege of seeing you is fortunate. Um, thank you. Thank you. Um, my question for you is um, kind of in the longs of Odeth. I, uh, I'm Armenian, and learning about... Ah. Um, we have a saying, Aman Astavat, which means... Um, the Aman part is the same, Anatolia connection there, but Astavaz means God in Armenian. Um, and it's kind of looking at any time that something is done that's a little bit morbid or um, out of the acceptance of the realm, uh, that's kind of a saying, which has been kind of my life's existence within my family. Say that uh, again, the expression. Aman Astavaz. Because sometimes when Greeks get angry or they're, they say, Aman, Achaman. Like that, you know? So maybe it's similar. Yeah, maybe, yeah. yeah. Um, my question in particular, uh, so my interpretation of the song and kind of what, what I walked away with and even hearing it on the record was that it would be tied in with the idea of uh, AIDS. But it wasn't um, in the interviews that I've read. Um, but I'm wondering if you have any thoughts within our current realm, um, especially you being in Canada, December 1st approaching on Friday of being World AIDS Day, um, any statement or any sort of uh, an interpretation um, that is on the topic of AIDS, especially given the fact that Canada has probably one of the worst criminalization laws within the entire world uh, with regards to this topic. I would uh, like to know, what, would you make specific references that I don't know about? So if, if you have um, sort of um, um, a sexual encounter with someone but don't disclose, your HIV status, regardless of transmission, you get, um, um, they could charge you with um, aggravated assault all the way up to uh, murder charges. Um, hmm. So um, it puts the onus on the person who is HIV positive to navigate the system. It also increases stigma, something you mentioned earlier as well. Um, but also kind of in the context of today, uh, back in the 80s and 90s, there would be a community rallying around um, the folks who, who, who Sarah converted. Um, there was at least art and artists who embraced the idea and tried to talk about it. I find that really healing. Um, looking at 
um, your work or others' work from that era, um, kind of reflecting back in the work that I do has been healing. But there's nothing of that sort now. Um, and I'm wondering if you have any sort of um, ideas on this or any sort of uh, guidance or, or advice as to how can one begin to explore that sort of uh, pathway to heal. You didn't write me a letter last night, did you? It was you. I knew it immediately. Armen. Armen. I knew it was you. I loved your letter very much, very much. Um, let me think for a second. Um, I think that, okay, I remember a long period when I had um, hepatitis C and I was told by all these doctors, cancer doctors, that I was going to get liver cancer and die within a few years. They didn't know when exactly. And this was in the 90s. And, um, I remember uh, strange things that would happen. I, of course, I was connected very much with, you know, the AIDS community, who were the ones who eventually gave me the doctor, who, <laughs> of course, who gave me the right combination of pegylated interferon um, to get rid of it. But. I remember I had this boyfriend for five years, and it wasn't, and he knew everything about what was going on and the possibility that he could become infected, which was 0.4% kind of thing, you know. And I mean, it's not like we were sharing needles, for example, you know, then you're really looking at the getting it, like, all right, at the fifth year, we were in my kitchen before we're going to a show, and I was having a yogurt. And he looked at me and he said, could I have some of that? Oh, no, actually, I shouldn't. And I said, honey, you know what? I got news for you. You think you're going to die tomorrow? Mm-mm. Probably tonight. Probably tonight. Because you know what? The last several months, I've been building your coffin. I've been building it, and it looks real good. And it'll look real good on you. And very soon afterwards, that was it. But he had been talking to a nurse in the building who had a boyfriend who had a liver like a rock because it was, you know, he had cirrhosis, but he hadn't been taking like a lot of men, don't want to take those big horse needles full of interferon. He didn't want to do it, so he put it off, you know. Well, it's funny because a lot of the people get hep C or dopamine, so, you know, <laughs> you've been doing needles for years and suddenly you're not going to do it when it has to do with saving your life. You know, it's kind of curious, you know. And a lot of these guys are asking all their girlfriends to come over and babysit them. Oh, my God. And um, I had a neighbor who was going through the treatment I was going through, and he was like feeling so sorry for himself. I said, you know what? See that truck over there? 
why don't you run across the street? Maybe it'll run over your ass because I'm not any fucking nurse. And that's what I think needs to happen, is that people who get the stigma put on them can put the stigma right back and laugh about it, really, and make fun of the people who are like that. And that I learned from being around the AIDS community so long and seeing the way so many people were treated so much, so terrible. I learned from it and I got stronger by it. You know, eventually I got rid of it, but still, if you have had hepatitis C, people do not believe that you've been cured. Most people don't. They don't believe it. They believe that it's there forever and you're just lying. And I've seen it online. <laughs> and so many people say, the one that's got hepatitis C, she be, should be reported because she's spreading it everywhere. And you know what I do? I do this. Ha, ha, ha! Eat shit, motherfuckers, and die. Because <laughs> I took those goddamn shots and I went through that horrible depression of chemotherapy. I went through it where you want to die every day. And I did it for eight months, you know, so, you know. Anybody can, anybody can say anything, really. It doesn't mean anything. We're talking, when I referred to the Makams before, it's your own road. It's your road and nobody else's. And they can stand on the side and they can say whatever the fuck they want, but it doesn't mean a goddamn thing. And that's a hard thing to do, is to go your own road. So that's the big challenge, I think. It's life on life's terms. Thank you. Do we have another uh, question? Um, oh, over there in the back. Hi. Hi. My name's Albert. Um, I'm wondering if you feel any regrets about Gloomy Sunday. Where like, are you? I'm right in the back, straight. You, straight you're in, holding the paper, right? No. You. Standing. Oh, there you are. Clear as day. Okay. The, the song Gloomy Sunday, which is about suicide. Yeah. Do you see a cause and effect relationship? Like, say some fans go jump off a bridge or something like that. Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to be callous. But do you have any regrets about Gloomy Sunday? And do you see a cause and effect relationship between copycats and people committing suicide? No. I don't think the song has anything to do with encouraging suicide at all, nothing. I think it, it is a song, it's a, a very beautiful song. I think that it, but it is not a, a song that would lend anyone to jumping off a building, no. I think it's a very sad song and it expresses emotions that many people have from time to time. But I don't think it's a kind of a, call to arms for persons with suicide to jump? I don't think so. I think it's far more profound than that. I think it ex expresses feelings that a lot of people have from time to time that are very dark and very lonely and very despairing. And again, if you listen to the chord changes, they're much too complex to address something that that can happen so quickly. 
you know, I think, no, no, I, I think a suicide is something that a lot of times people think about for many years before they do it, many years. And it's a horrible thing because if a person starts thinking about it, that's, that's a dangerous road to take, very dangerous. It's much more than just an instantaneous idea. That question kind of made me angry. <laughs> As somebody who's experienced a great deal of suicidal ideation, hearing songs that are representing people who are in that same experience provides comfort and p allows me to keep going. But sorry, I couldn't help but want to say that. Anybody else have a question? <laughs> Hi. Hi. It's great to wake up in the world each day knowing you exist as well. It gives something further to your Thank you. My question is, how do you prevent from spontaneously combusting when you're getting <laughs> so much of authenticity and, and the talent that you're working through that's just flowing through you and the generosity around all that to give it to us? Um, it, it's curious how, as a person, you can channel and work with all that, and it just doesn't overwhelm you. Or does it? That's your work. That's a very, very good question. I think, for one thing, I'm standing here in front of all of you, and I can't imagine why you're here. I can't imagine why you're here, and why you would imagine you could learn anything from me. I mean, that, I, mean I, I honestly feel that. And I'm not saying that anyone is actually coming here to learn from me. Maybe you just want to see my hair or how long it is <laughs> or something. You know, oh, I knew it. You want big hair. I'm sorry. God, the complaints I get from time to time. But I, I think, you know, uh, when I'm not performing, I spend a lot of time alone because... I don't know. I don't. I don't know why I do that. But I think it's kind of a kind of the behavior of an invert or something. I'm not really sure what it is, but perhaps that's when I build up the strength to do the performances. I, I'm not really sure, but I don't have any kind of social life, which is it, it's self-inflicted. It's. A, I'm not really sure if that's related. I, I really don't know, but. Um, it does take a lot of energy to do those performances, it does. And a lot of rehearsal, I mean, on a rehearsal day, and I mean on a show day, I'm let's see, voice, that's like one hour, two hours, maybe, maybe four or five hours of the sound check, including my vocal warm-up, piano warm-up, rehearsing of all the songs in each space, because you need to establish the appropriate electroacoustic environment in each space. It's not like the, just kind of a hack job where you drag in the same setup, you know? So then after that, you do the show. So it's a big, it's a big day. And um, hmm. I, I think that after that, I, I get together with a, a group of people I've worked with and we talk about the show. And uh, if somebody's too critical, I get very annoyed. <laughs> but that's, you know, it's just, you know, it's what this is kind of ritual. 
but it's not a big party, you know, it's not a big party. And um, that's just, that's the peculiarity of my personality, but that's all right. And so, yeah, I don't know if I answered the question right. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Thank you. Another question? Hi. Oh. Uh, good evening. And uh, thank you very much for coming back to Toronto. Um, thank you. I'm going to do a little bit of, a minor bit of self-aggrandizing and say that I was the guy who said, and you know, we love you, Diamanda, and we really do. Oh, um, thanks. But my question is, is that in terms of rarefied performance, which I think is something that you do very well, and you are very, one of the rarest of the rarefied artists in today's world, where do you think the future is for people like yourself? Because we are living in a day and age where the process, as you spoke earlier, is becoming more uh, marginalized down to niente, nothing. People want the final product. They, yep. want, they want the industry side of what art can be, but they don't want it as art itself. You're right, and it reduces the quality of the art. Where it, do you think, the, is, you, is there any hope in the future for people like yourself? I don't know, because I, I have to tell you that that's been a big question I've asked myself the last few years. I've said, well, you know, um, since it's up to you to subsidize this stuff, you know, then, you know, essentially you have to, you have to tour work that you performed for a while, you know, a lot to raise money to do this new work. And there's something about that that's, it's, it's kind of, I don't know. It, Does it bring you down a little bit? Yeah. Just to have to compete with the, in, the industry side of things? Well, I'm not competing. I don't think I'm competing with the industry side. I think that it's just that I'm just not... Um, uh, it's just that it's, we're not in the same time period as we were a while ago in which you would actually get production monies. Right. You know, rehearsal monies. And you, now you have to actually make a big point about it. As it, and, 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 and the point, you're looking at someone who you believe will be em empathetic and will understand what the real industry standard should be, and suddenly you see their eyes glaze over, and that's weird. It's I, just I, weird. I agree, because you mentioned earlier on Hal Wilner, and I'm a Hal Wilner fan because, oh. of, because of what he did for Lou Reed's Berlin. Yes. A few years back, and I think that's wonderful because Lou never got his credit during the day when that album first showed up, right? Right. Because of all of the darkness and all of the, not darkness, I'd say reality of that, yeah. of that context. Again, like, um, I really, I have to say that I'm just going to, I am going to end this uh, part of my questioning with a sentence because yeah. that's the way that people do speak in the 21st century still. <laughs> and I want to say thank you very much that you are such a rarefied performer. Mm -hmm. um, but one quick question. Do you like Scott Walker? I love Scott Walker. I love him too. Oh my God. I think you should work with him. He's still alive. Yes. Well, I don't think he's very old, really. I don't think he's very old at all. And I think I just discovered him a few years ago. Oh, really? In his early work. And I was blown away. I said, man, that's a real voice, isn't it? I think and, so, yeah. Yeah, and all these posers up there singing, thinking they're singing, they're just standing up there with a microphone. They, they, need, to, they need to silence me, but I wanted to say thank you. 
Thank you. And bellissima. Bravo. Oh, grazie molto. So I think we've got time for two more questions. Hello, my name is also Owen. Oh, right here. Oh, hi. Hi there. I just want to say, first off, it was an unbelievable concert last night. Thank you. And I was just going to go back probably a few years. I was reading an interview, I believe you did. You mm -hmm. were, it was after the late Whitney Houston passed away, mm -hmm. and you were making sort of a statement against how she was sort of pressured before she had mentally sort of recuperated yes. to deliver a, a product. And, you know, we've seen this before with people in the industry, like the late Amy Winehouse, where they've gone through oh. mental and personal problems. Oh. And they got, like, pushed into delivering the product, and they end up, you know... Like, like she passed before, you know, she had mentally recovered and it was just too much. And I was just wondering, in your career, have you felt that some sort of pressure to to deliver a product and have your own sort of mental and personal well-being put on the back burner? Actually, no. And the reason for that is because, I mean, I mean, if you listen to my work, it, it just kind of doesn't. It's, it wouldn't convince anyone that it wouldn't convince anyone that I was striving to make it big. <laughs> you know, I mean, I did a I did an album with John Paul Jones, and after that, I love him too. And but after that, I recorded Shy Twenty Seven, which is really, I mean, an offensive record to most people, and. I was performing in Prague, and this, I guess, the year before, so I had released the record of, with John Paul Jones, and so there were a lot of bikers there, or there were a lot of these guys, and they were really, like, waiting for, you know, part two of that. And instead, I did this piece, which they considered a woman in darkness sh shrieking for 27 minutes. Like, Get that bitch off the stage! You know, and the head of the record company says, well, you know, you know, I thought you were going in a certain direction with this John Paul Jones thing, and, and then you released Shy 27, I said, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and in Prague, the producer was furious. He called himself an avant-garde producer, but really, you know, he didn't really want that sort of thing. He wanted something very commercial. And so he was very annoyed until all the great reviews came out. But the people that really loved me after that performer were all this performance were all these filmmakers who, like me, were interested in doing films about radioactive worms from the, beneath the earth. So it's just like, no, I don't think anyone would ever think of me as an upwardly mobile citizen. But I... I I was furious about Whitney, just furious because it was so obvious what they were doing to her. They, they took a woman who had not been singing at all and, you know, because of the toxic conspiracy she had with that moron boyfriend of hers, you know, just ended up at the bottom of the sea and suddenly they want to re resurrect her in one week as a great singer again. It doesn't work like that. 
You know, you got to build those muscles back. You got to get the mind back in shape. That takes years. You know, and they didn't do it. They presented her like some kind of a crack, crack hole or something like, and just, ooh. When I see that guy's face, and I think that he just came out, <laughs> like, oh, go back into that closet, please. Nobody wants to see you. Who, Bobby Brown just came out? Clive Davis. Oh, Clive oh Davis. my God, that ugly pig face. Can you imagine him coming out? What an insult. You know, there's people like that that decide to come out in their dotage. And, you know, there should be a basement where people say, you have to go back in and kick them down the stairs. <laughs> yeah, don't do it. Like Dory Previn. Holy fuck. I think we got one more. Hi, thank you so much for your talk. Um, what should I do if I make music and no one likes what I'm doing? <laughs> <laughs> and I don't have any money either, so... Do more of it. <laughs> you have to... When, you, when you're doing something that nobody likes and everyone says there's no point, that's when you do more of it and you do it louder. Cool, so I'm on the right track then. Absolutely. <laughs> You know, I wanted to allow this gentleman with the glasses to and, uh, ask a question. Yes. You can. I'd like him to ask because he's been trying to so long. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to meet you. Thank I actually you. have two questions for you. I, uh, oh, very slick. I found my way to you 25 years ago at a Cramps concert in Toronto at the Concert Hall. Wow. Where the DJ played Let My People Go. And it's oh. the first show that I've been to where everyone on the floor stopped what they were doing and listened and thought, what is this voice? It was incredibly powerful. Oh. And I'm wanting to know, do you have any instances in your life where you've heard a voice or a piece of music that made you stop and pause and take note? Yes, um, Dinah Washington is definitely Dinah Washington, you know. And certain cantejondo singers, um, uh, one family in particular, and suddenly I forgot the name, I can't believe it. But um, I would say Dinah Washington first. I think it's interesting that you referenced um, one of your shows that you did several years ago, that you have memories of shows. So in my pursuit to see you perform, I went to New York to see, I think it was called Scream of Love at a club. <laughs> me. Yes, at me. I was there. <laughs> I wanted to know, one, do you have every, any memories of that show? And would the Diamanda of today have any advice for the Diamanda at that show? <laughs> do it again, baby. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you all very much. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you, AGO.